Father, we want to thank you that we can gather here, and our desire is to be shaped by you, that we would live lives that embody the generosity that you have so consistently and unconditionally bestowed on all of us in the room. So give us eyes to see that generosity, hearts to respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in keeping with this basketball theme, I want to share a story uh, that is a Father's Day story related to my own father. My dad, as some of you know, died when I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school, and he was my best friend. It was a great loss. It plunged me into a bit of a depression. Uh, Five years after my dad died at the age of, he was 53, uh, I wrote him a poem and for those of you who don't know, my dad was very athletic as a high school student and a, and a college student. He played baseball, basketball, and ran track as well, but then was afflicted with a lung disease that ultimately took his life at the age of 53, so that by the time I was in junior high, he'd come home from work completely spent, and his oxygen level would be low in his blood, but uh, unbeknownst to me, he was demonstrating sacrificial love that I only saw in retrospect. He would come home... I'd be uh, shooting baskets in the driveway. Dad would get out of the car, bit huffing and puffing, and say, hey, let's play a game of horse. And I'd toss him the basketball, and then he'd shoot, and I'd shoot until one of us won, and then he'd go inside. And as a junior high kid, I just thought, oh, he just loves basketball. Isn't that amazing? And then I wrote this as part of a larger poem five years after my dad died. I said, when I was 13, you'd come home from work exhausted and oxygen-starved, And you'd say, let's play horse, and I'd throw the ball. I thought you loved hitting nothing but net at 18 feet, but it was really me that you loved. And this story to me embodies this call to generosity for this reason. Generosity is not about giving out of your abundance. That's a false paradigm. We get over that in our time together this morning. And we can partly get over that by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul says... We want you to know, brothers, by the grace of God that has been given us among the churches of Macedonia, we've seen a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In other words, the Macedonians were themselves facing trial and material want, and yet in spite of trial and material want, they continued to give, continued to give, continued to give. If you want to be in the stream of God's activity, if you want to participate in this ever-present dance of giving and receiving that is all around us in the universe, if you want to live a life of joy and hope and meaning, then you must embrace the practice of generosity. And that's what we're going to spend some time together looking at this morning. I realize that speaking of generosity in a time of uh, severe inflation is, is challenging. And I realize that the sense of shortage that many of us feel is not only financial, but in some cases, our sense of shortage is emotional. We're, we're worn down. We don't have a lot of emotional energy anymore. We've heard each other uh, online in social media comments that have been made. Uh, this makes us edgy. This makes us uh, more prone to cynicism and withdrawal. It's a difficult time to give, to give emotionally, to give financially, uh, to give spiritually. And as a result of that, we find ourselves in, in kind of self-preservation mode. And I want to challenge us this morning that the only way 
to live the life for which you're created is to get out of self-preservation mode and allow God to preserve you, care for you, provide for you, and then begin to get into the stream of living generously. So today, we're looking at what the scriptures teach us about giving in all seasons, and we're going to discover three imperatives that I think are very important. First of all, we're here to sow, uh, therefore embrace giving as core to our identity. Second, we have good seed, so we need to access that storehouse of generosity that's already in us. And then third, so-so. In other words, you're called to sow seeds of generosity and hope in the world, and therefore, let's get on with it and do that. So we begin with this. We're here to sow, and therefore, we're going to embrace giving as a, as a core part of our identity, right? It's everywhere in the Bible. Every element of creation is continually involved in this kind of dance of reciprocity, giving and receiving. Everything is continually giving and receiving. Right now, as we sit here, you're receiving. What are you receiving? You're receiving oxygen. Every breath you take, you're receiving a gift of oxygen. Where does the oxygen come from? You're receiving oxygen because the trees are exhaling oxygen that they're, that they're sharing with you. And then when you exhale your carbon dioxide, your carbon dioxide feeds the tree. Oh, and by the way, a healthy tree feeds healthy soil. And a healthy, healthy soil give, gives you food to eat so that you can then uh, live a life of abundance and give back to the soil so that someone else can eat healthy food. That's the way it works. Giving, receiving, dependency, interdependency. This is, this is this, this ongoing ecosystem of provision uh, that is this mutual dance of giving and receiving and that's where we're called to live. And we know it not just by looking at creation, we know it by looking at the texts of Scripture and what God has for us. God says to us in Genesis chapter 12, when he spoke to Abraham, and we are his offspring, he said this, look, I've blessed you for this reason. So you now, having received from me, your cup is full, you begin to live lavishly. You can pour out your gifts. You can, you can teach. You can preach. You can, you can play music. You can, you, can, you can do keyboard. You can minister to students at UW. Whatever it is that you're called to do, you can go do that thing because I've given to you. So now you've received, and as you receive, what? Jesus said it, freely you've received, freely give. Your cup is full, pour it out. Don't worry, it'll be full again, and again, and again, and again, but only if you begin to practice giving. That's the life for which you're created. So you're blessed in order to be a blessing. Freely receive, freely give, Matthew 10, 8. Of course, there's that parable of the talents where the only guy that's chastised, one guy gets, you know, $2,000, one gets $3,000, one gets five. The guy with three, the guy with five, <coughs> they both multiply it by putting it to work. The guy with two buries it, and, and the master says, what are you doing? I didn't give you gifts <coughs> to bury the gifts. I gave you gifts to use the gifts. And so we're, we're, we're in this stream of activity where we're called to give and give and give because we're receiving and receiving and receiving, right? And so th this is how we're made. Paul says in Acts 20, uh, 20, verse 35, it's better to give than receive. And because all of creation is involved in that, I want to kind of help you think with me about the stick and carrot that are attached to giving so that you understand, oh yeah, this is really bad if I don't give and this is really good if I do, right? And so the stick is this. Look, to, to live a life of kind of self-sufficiency whereby 
uh, you buy into kind of the, the idolatry that is American culture individualism, and you go, I'm here on my own. It's every man for himself. I got to build my kingdom. I got to provide my, for myself. I got to provide for my own future. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive and save, receive and save, receive and save. And then I'm going to build a fortress around my investments. I'm going to diversify. And I'm gonna make, it's all, it's here. It's for me. I'm going to care for my body. I'm going to steward my body. It's called stewardship. Steward my body, not, not work too hard. Steward my finances not give too much, steward my emotions, not talk to too many people, and now here I am. I, like, I'm protected, and you're not, by the way, you're not living. Because you were never intended to live a life whereby your goal is to build a fortress so that you're impenetrable for suffering. No. That's not the gospel in any shape at all, right? So uh, we want to learn here that if we buy into that paradigm, we will not be satisfied. That guy who built the barns and then the more barns and then more barns. And at the end he says, hey, I've arrived. Jesus says, my paraphrase, no, you haven't. Like you totally missed the point. Some of you know that I lived uh, in Friday Harbor from 1984 to 1990. That's where God tricked me into becoming a pastor was in Friday Harbor. I was going to be there for six months and then go on and become Jeff Cuse and, you know, teach at a Bible school or something like that. And instead now, you know, 40 years I've been doing this thing. Anyway, uh, Friday Harbor has the whole spectrum of economic strata, right? There's a gal in our church who um, really lived on very little. They would bring to my wife and I uh, dead chickens as an offering, or a, a quarter of a lamb or something like that, or eggs, because they just didn't have a lot of money. But they were super generous people. And then on the other hand, a guy came in one Sunday, and I, like, I didn't know who he was. I don't know where he came from. And he owned a, like a summer house on the west side of the island. All the windows on the, on the west side of the house, on the west side of the island, were looking out toward... Van, uh, Vancouver Island, lights of Victoria, and between Victoria and San Juan is the strait, and in the strait, the, you know, there's whales and salmon and eagles, and it's like, you know, perfection, basically. And his house looked like this amazing kind of Frank Lloyd Wright stellar design thing. Like, if you wanted the good life, boom, this guy had it. Well, I'm just speaking that Sunday randomly on Paul and contentment in Philippians chapter 4. This guy comes up to me at a service. And he goes, I have to talk with you this week. I have to. Give you any amount of money to spend some time together. I said, you know, I knew about this house. It was rumored. I said, I'll come to your house for free. <laughs> if you got a telescope, man, I just want to see the whales. Yeah, oh, good, good. So, you know, I go to his house. And... This guy told me his whole story of making a lot of money in the early days of tech, you know, and then being super successful in his investments, and then, you know, building his house, and then, you know, failed relationship, and hidden addiction, and loneliness, and outwardly unbelievable successful, and then, he, you know, he fixed his relationship, and he, you know, he fixed his addiction, and he went to the 12-step thing, and he had, like, he had everything, and then he was like this. He's looking at me, and he says, Richard, if I could be as content as you are for 10 minutes, I'd sell my house. Like, 
I have no contentment. I live in a trailer, right? Just off the property of the house, uh, of, the, of, the, of the house, of the church, the house of God. I lived on the, <laughs> the trailer. You know, splitting wood, getting three chickens, eggs on wick or whatever that thing is. We had free milk, all that stuff, you know? And I was, I was like a kid in a candy shop, man. You kidding me? I get to cut my own wood? We're eating eggs from chickens? We live on an island? This is amazing. There's eagles making love in the sky. It's a whole different story, no time. I was like, man, I'm happy on a thousand a month. And here's this guy. He's done making money. Money's making money for him. And he's weeping. How can I find contentment? Like, why is he in this mess? I'll tell you why. He's bought into the big lie that if you can just build your castle, you're going to be happy. You're not. I'm, t- I'm just telling you, you're not. As a pastor, I, this isn't the only guy I've met with. Over and over and over and over and over again, people are like this. Yep, climb to the mountain, got to the top, wrong mountain. What do I do now? At, you know, at 50 or 55 or 60 or 65 or 70 or 40. Well, I got good news. There is a right mountain. It's called Generosity. Because if I, if, I, if I step into generosity, and, and watch this, not once with a big check, but over and over again, with time, with money, with relationships, with emotional energy, if I begin to give of myself, not just my checks, but my, my whole human personhood, to the extent that I give, I, my cup keeps, keeps getting filled. We have this uh, little tiny house now, and I go out there, and those of you who know me know that I have morning spiritual disciplines of coffee with God and, you know, meditation and scripture reading and all that cool stuff. And I've been doing it for years now at the exact same time that my neighbors go walking. And then I kind of say, yo, I'd love to walk with the neighbors, but I'm too busy being holy. I've got this thing I do with coffee and French press and Ezekiel, right? Well, so somehow this sermon convicted me that I, I got to, I can meditate. Come on. I'm not even senior pastor anymore. I've got more time than ever. I can do my coffee thing any time of the day or night. So I, under conviction from the Holy Spirit, this last Saturday, I thought, okay, I've got to start walking with the neighbors. I just, that's what I have to do. And so I, I stepped out. I want you to know I'm an introvert. And my kind of assumption was this is going to be exhausting. You know, walking with the neighbors. We're going to talk about whatever. And I stepped out, and I'm going again tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday because my cup is full by just walking with people and hearing. And it's, an, it's like a new revelation to me at 66 years old. Oh, yeah, this is a piece of me that I've been holding on to. And it, I, actually, in letting go... I'm finding a new, a new facet of my life. So I just want to share with you, like this is ongoing for all of us, this, this learning generosity. Why? It's the life for which we're created. Now, second, here's the deal. We need to believe then that we have something to give. Uh, in other words, we have the good seed, therefore access your storehouse for generosity. Just again, to loop back to this story about walking with the neighbors, my tendency is to think 
outside of preaching and writing, I have nothing to offer people. Do, do you know what I mean? So I go, okay, I, why would anyone want to talk to me anyway? So I'm just going to go do my thing here from the mountaintop and then not actually engage. And I'm learning, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. Actually, uh, I have gifts to share beyond public gifts. And to the extent that I begin to believe that, then I'm, I'm more desirous of sharing those gifts. So what happens for many of us is we're not in the stream of God's activity of generosity because we are like this. Oh, yeah, God can be generous because God's infinite. I'm not infinite. Finite time, finite money, finite emotional energy. Like, I just don't have what it takes. I'm dealing with my own, you know, mountain of emotional need and, you know, gas at Costco is five fifteen a gallon, let alone anywhere else, right? And so then I fill my tank up. I, don't, I have less money. And then I go online and I see people of a different political persuasion or theological persuasion, and I get frustrated, and now I have no emotional energy. I'm out of emotions. I'm out of time. I'm out of money. I'm finite. I can't give. Hey, that's bad accounting is what I'm going to say here, right? Because the Apostle Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, all things are yours. What's he mean by that? Well, he goes on, and this is what he says. He says, uh, the future is yours, the present is yours, life is yours, death is yours, the saints are yours, the world is yours. And here's, Paul is saying, you have everything you need to, um, you know, pour out of your cup. You do. He said it this way in John 7, Jesus. He said, are you thirsty? Come drink. I'll turn you into a river of living water. Just partake of me, and I will so transform you that you have enough. You're Ephesians 1, blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are Second Peter 1. Uh, you've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. You're adopted. You're chosen. You're filled. You're blessed. God will provide for you materially. Matthew chapter 6. Everything you need to live the life for which you're created, you have it. And not just enough for you, enough to share. I wish I had the guts. I would take the lid off and just get you all wet right now. So you could get this kind of illustration that that's the way we're intended to live. <clears throat> it's just to pour out and pour out and pour out. Why? There's always more. There's, there's just always more, right? Um, I would take my kids on these backpacking adventures when they uh, were entering high school. It was like a rite of passage kind of thing, right? So I took Christy, my oldest daughter, up to uh, Mount Baker. And it was August of a year utterly unlike this one. It was a dry year. And, and, but I had assured her, you know, when we get up to this meadow here, near a place called Park Butte, there will be a beautiful stream meandering through the meadow. So don't, don't worry about the fact that we're out of water. We'll get up there, there'll be water. We get up there, there's no water. The stream is dry. I go, oh, no, no, don't, don't worry. You know, the next higher meadow, there'll be water. So we get up, there's no water. It's 85 degrees, not a cloud. We're dry, we're dehydrated, we're thirsty. There's no water. Then there's this stinky little pond that's got mold on it. And I go, no, there's got to be better water. I know. Let's hike over to this place called Railroad Grade on this, at the edge of the glacier no doubt there's going to be water there because there's still snow in the mountain and it's got to be melting. So we get to the place where there's always been water because I'd, I'd climbed Mount Baker numerous times and there's no water there either. And we're sitting there like lizards, just dry, sunburnt, thirsty. And my poor daughter's like, 
Oh, it's Terry. You told me there'd be water, Dad. I know. I don't, I'm sorry. And then, you know, in the silence of the moment, I hear water. Another 50 yards probably up toward the glacier. I walk up there. When I, hear, when I get there, then I hear a little waterfall. And it's just, it's just water. I mean, it's a hot day. There's the, the, the snow on the mountain is just melting and coming down. It's just coming down. It just happens to be, you know, going into the soil and evaporating before it got to where we were. But up there, tons of water. So we took, we took our water bottles. We went up there. We fill them. We drink. We fill them. We drink again. We fill them. We have a water fight. We sleep in the sun, <clears throat> all wet. We wake up. We drink again. We have another water fight. We fill our cups. Then we hike back to where we're going to camp. And we, we went from zero to abundance, right? If I could wish anything for you, it would be this, that you would know, that you would know that you have abundance. You, look, you have the risen Jesus living in you who has promised to provide for you materially, but more than materially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, in every way so that you have resources so that you too can have a water fight. You too can share why? There's more where this came from. Always, always, always more. S quit living small. I'll just say it that way. Quit living small. Because in the accounting of God, there's no need to live small. We have plenty. And when we have plenty, like, we give. This, um, years ago we did this mission trip to Nepal, and the people who we served who were 12 hours from the nearest car. They lived in a village only accessible by hiking. Uh, we did a medical clinic for them, and the church had been uh, burnt to the ground five times by Hindu antagonists in the region. And so then we did this medical clinic. We served 600 people in, in probably two days or so. And at the end of the second day, and many of them were Hindus, and at the end of the second day... Uh, the pastor and the village chief said, we're going to give you guys a party. And then, you know, we had this big celebration meal and it's a, there's a campfire and we're all sitting, you know, literally on the ground in a circle and they had slaughtered an entire yak to share with us. And let me tell you, a yak for that group of people is a lot of resource. Do you know what I mean? a lot of protein to share on, to share with, you know, 10 Americans who are already protein fat <laughs> anyway. But they, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to do, they wanted to provide this whole yak festival for us. And then some, you know, some doll bought. And the pastor said, uh, he said, listen, sharing this yak is nothing compared to what you, we've received from you guys. The uh, chief of the Hindus in the village just met with me. And he said, because of all the medical care provided, uh, they've promised uh, never again to burn down our church. And they said, we want to work together. We want to work together to figure out how we can serve our community and how we can together provide clean water. And look, he, he was like this, look what God has done. How could we not share? So that, look, they sensed their own abundance and gave out a sense of abundance, even though it was costly. Does that make sense? Like that's how we're called to live. But it's all predicated on us doing accurate accounting. And how do we do accurate accounting? We begin to look around and go, how am I doing? And the, here's the answer, I'm fine. Are there, is gas expensive? Yes. Is everything expensive? Yes. Is there no toilet paper in the world? 
Correct. It's a problem. There are problems, problems everywhere. I get it. Okay, fine, fine. There's problems. And the sun's still shining, and it's still raining, and the lakes are full, and you have clean water, and you had access to education, and there's somebody who loves you, and there's someone who's praying for you, and you're part of a beautiful community that's been here for 106 years, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you're forgiven, and God is in the midst of freeing you from addictions and moving you to ho- toward wholeness, and you have all things pertaining to life and godliness. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. How you doing? You should be saying, I'm fine. Thank you. Problems? Of course. But riches as well. Because when we see ourselves as rich, we open up, man, and share. It's a water fight every day. So this is our desire, is that we see ourselves as in this, you know, this vast created world, this beautiful ecosystem that is displaying for us interdependency and generosity and reciprocity, and creation is displaying that because the Godhead displays that, the Son glorifying the Father, the Father glorifying the Son, the Spirit pointing to the Son and the Father as the source of all life, this dance of interdependency, mutuality, giving and receiving in the Godhead, creation reflecting that same glory of God. We're then down here as fallen humans, called out as a species to recover our vocation as image bearers. And if I'm to be an image bearer, I'm to live in generosity and reciprocity and independence. That's my calling. And yours. And I can because God's given me enough. Enough to share. So that leads us to the conclusion, which is this. So-so. S-O-S-O-W. Meaning what? Look, you have, <clears throat> you have resources to share. Finances, spiritual gifts, and the, and the gift of your presence. Just begin to actively open and give. It bothers me a bit when we stand up here and I've done it. I said, you know, some of you give of time, some of you give of money. That's fine. And it's true to an extent. It's also true that I know the human heart. Some of us would way rather give of time than money. And so, you know, we're prone to going over here to the Community Life Center building next door, making sandwiches, making burritos, riding a bike 100 miles, all good, thank you. But if that's your giving and there's no financial component, I want to challenge you to say, you know, holistic generosity is the calling of all of us. And then there are others as well uh, who have gobs of money, and it's far easier to write a check than make eye contact. And I would say to you, hey, Get in the game. This is not just about writing a check. It's about being the presence of Christ for one another, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. So all of us have to really, you know, pray this through and figure out what we're going to do next, but we have to sow the seeds of hope. Uh, I'm profoundly influenced in my life by a space of geography called Mount Hermon. It's a conference ground in California in the Santa Cruz Redwood Mountains. I go there and speak every year. I'm going in a couple of weeks, actually. And when I go there, I always visit my grandmother's house. My grandmother died in 1975, but I visit her house. It's like a pilgrimage because that was the safest place on the planet for me. I love that place. We'd come over from the heat of Fresno to the misty redwoods, and I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven, honestly. And my grandmother loved me so much. Like, I remember her hugs. 
I remember her cinnamon rolls. I remember her getting up before she went to work as a baker at the camp to make us cinnamon rolls and bacon and scrambled eggs every morning. Profound generosity. I remember thinking at the time, she must love to cook, man. Oh, no, 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 she didn't love to cook. She loves us. You know, I mean, she, does love, she loves to cook, but she loves to, she loves to give. She loves to give. That created an environment where I encountered a guy speaking at the adult conference grounds. And as a 12-year-old, I bought his book. And his name was John Hunter. And he was, a, he was affiliated with Torturers Missionary Fellowship. And I'm affiliated now because I bought that book then. It's a longer story than the moment. But uh, that was in 1968 when I bought his book. Fast forward to 1993. I'm speaking in England at a Torturer General Conference to all the staff and leaders Sitting in the front row is John Hunter, who by then is 90 years old. So I spoke, and then I went up to Dr. Hunter, and I said, hey, I'm here because of you. And your faithful preaching on a Tuesday night in Santa Cruz in 1968. Do you remember? I asked that to him. I don't recall it, he said. Of course not. It's just another day for him. Preach for Mount Hermon, on to Hume Lake, on to Forest Home, on to Michigan, on to upstate New York. And then what? You know, back to England to speak 15 times a week to, to students who will come from all over the world to live in a castle for nine months to encounter the risen Jesus. But here's the thing I love about Dr. Hunter. He was always all there, always. There's no like, you know, half-witted presentation of the gospel. It's always I'm here, so I'm going to be all here. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Play piano, teach a class, run a bike trip. Whatever it is that God gives you to do, man, there's, there's no insignificant seed. So in the morning, so at night. Why? Because you don't know when a 12-year-old is going to be in the back row who really wanted to buy beef jerky but heard your British accent and came and bought your book and it changed his life. You don't know. So keep Living faithfully. David Brooks learned this, New York Times columnist, by going to Kathy and David's house. They have a son, Sante, went to public school in Washington, D.C. Sante had a friend named James who sometimes went to bed hungry, so Sante invited his friend to sleep over at his house. But then James had a friend, and then that kid had a friend. And now, if you go to Kathy and David's house on any given Thursday night, there's about 26 kids sitting around the table. And not just kids, but older folks as well. David Brooks, this, uh, uh, he self-identifies uh, as the token conservative for the New York Times. And he, and he goes, you know, I remember the first time I came in to the house, Kathy and David's, for this Thursday night thing. It's a big tall guy with dreadlocks, greets him at the door. Brooks, if you've ever seen him, is this... He's as conservative looking as you can look conservative. And, and, and this big guy with dreadlocks, you know, Brooks puts his hand out and the guy goes, we don't, we don't do handshakes here. Bring it in, you know, it's a hug. <clears throat> he says, I've been hugging people for five, for five years now every Thursday night. Gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, young, old. What happens on those Thursday nights? You know, kids invite kids. And everybody, here's the rule. As soon as you enter the door, your phone goes in a bucket. There's no phones at the table. 
And then, you know, during the meal, somebody shares a highlight for the day and something nobody knows about them. And you hear everything from my past the GED to uh, my kidneys are failing and Medicaid won't cover the, med, the expenses. You hear, it all, you hear it all. He said I took his daughter one day. Uh, his daughter, David's daughter joined him on a Thursday night. She said that's the, that's the warmest place I've ever been. Took a social worker another Thursday night who said, I can tell you, I've been doing social work for 30 years. Programs don't change lives. This changes lives. What are David and Kathy doing? In a word, generosity. That's all. Time, some chicken and beans, a van trip to Cape Cod, unconditional love. Not, not, not predicated on you know, performance or ideology or gender orientation. Unconditional love. You know who does that? Jesus. You know what your calling is? To be the presence of Jesus. So we want to take a step toward generosity. What would happen if there were 10,000 David and Kathys in America? What would happen? What would happen if there were 10 in Seattle? If there were three at Bethany? What would happen? If people knew that on this planet of striving and fear and poverty and ache and woundedness, there's a safe place. Just all it takes is generosity. Each of us have a next step.